Good morning and welcome to the next instalment of our Being Human series. Now a few years ago at the Radio 1 offices in London, someone decided to play a prank on some of their colleagues. They went out and bought quite a large farewell card, a leaving card, uh, for a colleague called Dave. And they asked everyone in the department uh, to write an encouraging message for Dave, wishing him well in his future career. And they also said, uh, they asked people to write something uh, thankful and encouraging, just explaining what Dave meant to them and, and thanking him for the, the deep contribution that he'd made uh, in during his time uh, working in that department. And so they sent this card round for a couple of days and, and, and the, the, the encouraging messages began to fill up until this card was, was completely full. It was quite a large department. Now, the only problem was Dave didn't exist. There was no Dave. Dave was completely made up for the purposes of the prank. And uh, what they had kind of factored on was that this was a pretty big department. It was a pretty big office. And they hoped that nobody would notice that, that there wasn't, and in fact, nor had there ever been anyone who worked there by the name of Dave. And so all of these people were, were just blindly writing interesting encouragements and, and, and making up things that Dave had done and what Dave meant to them. And they read some of them out on the air and actually some of the encouragements were, were really strong. They were really profound and really meaningful. I guess it just goes to show that, that actually each of us can be pretty encouraging when we're called upon to do so. I wonder who the most encouraging person in your life is. Probably for me, it's someone actually I don't see incredibly often. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have an incredible number of encouraging friends and many of you indeed. But actually this person I'm thinking of, I, I don't see maybe more than once or twice a year, but, but every time I do, I feel like I come out of that time like I can take the world on. No matter what difficulties or stresses I'm going through at the time, I always come out feeling like God's with me and I've got this and it's going to be all right. Now, we're going to read uh, the next section in, in the letter that we've been looking through for the last few weeks at City Church. It's First Thessalonians in the New Testament. And Paul's writing to a church here, and, and he's desperate, really, not just to write, but he wants to come and see them so that he can encourage them. And his reasons for this is, is not just because he planted the church, although he did, not just because he loves them, although he did, but he's, he's actually quite concerned for them at the moment. They're going through a real hardship, a real challenge as a community. And, and history doesn't leave us the full details of exactly what that hardship uh, that they were going through was, but, but we know enough to know this was something that actually all of them as a, as a group were, were going through. And it was something that was really shaking them, something that was really shaking their faith. Maybe not entirely dissimilar to the kind of struggle and hardship that we're going through as a society at the moment with COVID-19. So let's, let's read these verses. Paul's explaining something of, of, of how he feels about them. And he also talks about how he sent his most encouraging friend, his best guy, a guy called Timothy, to come and try and establish them in their faith. So I'm going to read from uh, the beginning of chapter three. It says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel in Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we were destined to this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you 
beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labour would be in vain. And we can see from this that Paul's concern for them, his anxiety, if I can use that word, it's not a, not a wrong anxiety, not a negative one, but a, but a godly anxiety. His anxiety isn't just a general kind of pastoral care. It's not just a general worry that they're going through a rough patch, although he did care about them. Really, he, he spent a bit of time explaining to them before when he was teaching them that actually hardship, suffering, persecution, all of these things are part of the human experience. They're part of what it means to be human. And actually, they're part of the Christian experience as well. I'm sorry to say, if anyone tried to tell you at the moment you became a believer that you were in for an easy ride, you were probably being misled. But actually, he, he said that this is something that we shouldn't find surprising. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're going through as if something strange was happening. Even Jesus himself asked us to look with his lens. He said, actually, suffering and difficulty and hardship are part of the normal human experience. We aren't to look out of the world and the things going on at the moment and say, hang on, what's going wrong? It, it shouldn't be like this. Actually, we're to expect hardships and difficulties. The promise from Jesus was never that we wouldn't go through these things. The promise was that we could draw him into them and that he would walk through them with us. So actually, Paul's concern is rather more specific. His concern is that the devil or the tempter, as he calls him here, had somehow used the hardship and the situation they were going through to leverage that situation and to tempt them away, maybe away into a particular kind of sin or, or maybe just away from the rock solid strength of their faith, away from that relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. That was, that was his particular concern. And um, I don't know about you, but in my experience, uh, when I think back in my life to times when temptation has seemed the strongest and the most powerful, is usually been those times actually when I've been walking through real challenge and real difficulty. I can think back to times when, when stress and pressure at work was just in over my head. I can think of times when I'd, I'd gone through a painful breakup. I can think of times when, when money was tight. And there were other maybe family stresses and strains going on. Actually, those are usually the times I found, and I, I bet you're probably the same, when temptation can seem its strongest. I want just to say a, a, a couple of words about Paul's comment here. He, he, he attributes these temptations to, to, the, to the enemy, to the devil. And really the, the enemy and, and the demonic is not something that we, we often think about, is it, in our culture? When I say our culture, I don't, I don't just mean the West in, in 2020, but I mean in our church and in churches like ours. Often our worldview of Christianity is framed with, with not much of a thought to, to, to Satan or demons. It's framed often with not much of a thought to how sometimes there can be spiritual root causes to, to a lot of the issues and the things that we come up against in our lives. And yet the reality is in the New Testament, these things are widely talked about. This same Paul that wrote this letter, wrote letters to many other churches, 
In his letter to the Ephesians, he warned them not to give the devil a foothold in their lives, like a, a foot in the door, if you like, an entry point by which he can tempt and afflict them. Just a little while later in that same letter, he, he said that all of us, our believers, are, we're caught up in, in a spiritual battle. He said we need to wear what he called the armour of God. It was his, his metaphor for, for, for faith and love and truth and the gospel. And actually, we need these things in our lives, not just to wear, but, but actually to protect ourselves from the, from the flaming darts coming from the evil one. Other New Testament writers wrote similar things. James, in his letter, said we need to actively resist the devil so that he'll flee from us. John, in, in 1 John, described how the devil prowls around, he said, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He seems particularly concerned for, for people that the enemy would want to pick off because they're, they're on the edge of, of, of church life, because they're kind of on the edge of, of Christian relationships with others. Even Jesus himself on many occasions attributed the difficulties, the persistent sins, sometimes the physical or even the mental illness of certain people, he attributed them to demonic bondage. Not in every situation by any means, but quite often. To sum it up, Paul wrote to the, to the, sorry, to the Corinthian church, and he said they needed to make sure that they weren't letting themselves get outwitted by Satan. And he said, well, we, we get outwitted by being ignorant of his schemes. I think it's pretty clear from the comments that Paul wrote here in, uh, in his letter to the Thessalonians that he was far from ignorant. In fact, he was very aware, uh, very aware of the kind of things that Satan might be up to. In fact, if you were watching a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember in the previous passage, just a, a few sentences before this, Paul had told them that actually on a number of occasions, he tried to come and visit them as a church. In fact, he'd made plans. He booked his tickets, if you like. But each time he said, Satan hindered us. Now, he doesn't go on to explain in detail the exact circumstances of, of what that looked like. But Paul understood enough. He was able to discern enough to realize this wasn't just luck. It wasn't just a bad fortune. It wasn't just one of those things. But actually, he, he, he discerned that there were spiritual forces at play in, in hindering him from carrying out his mission. There was a great book written a few years ago by one of the, the leaders in our family of churches called Dave Devonish. It's called Demolishing Strongholds. I really recommend it. I just want to read a few, uh, a few sentences that he wrote on this topic. He says this. He says, we must approach the issue of spiritual warfare from a positive perspective. It's not something to be feared or to be too preoccupied with. We must not overestimate Satan and his power. Our focus must be to glorify Jesus and to do his work in the world. However, we must not underestimate Satan either. And we need to recognize that as we do the work of the kingdom, we will be opposed by Satan and his demons. We do have an active foe. To deny this is to expose ourselves even more to his subtle attacks. He goes on to quote the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this. He says, I'm certain one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We've become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, 
the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. So both of these really great teachers, these great men of God, are encouraging us. We need to be aware. We need to be prayerful and mindful of the work of the enemy around us. I think sometimes there's this feeling amongst Christians that that spiritual warfare prayer is something that only a few will, will ever get involved in as if it's some kind of Navy SEAL commando Christianity that only the the elite will participate in. That's nonsense. The New Testament writers make it clear that spiritual warfare is, is, is Christianity 101, and praying to resist him, as James said, should really be part of our normal day to day, week to week, month to month Christian life. You might remember uh, two or three weeks ago, there was a very high profile um, Twitter hack on on several uh, major accounts, people like uh, President Trump, President Obama, I think Elon Musk, Kanye West, a, a number of other very famous people were targeted in a Bitcoin scam. And one of the reasons this was so famous and it hit the headlines, apart from the fact that it was taking on board these famous people, was that actually in for a company like that, this is pretty rare. This was probably the biggest, maybe the only major attack that Twitter has has undergone in its time. And the reason is a company like this cannot afford to be ignorant of the threat that comes in from from cyber attack and cyber security. I'm sure any company like this will have invested millions and millions of dollars in, 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 in protecting itself against this kind of attack. It will have employed a great many people precisely to do that job. And in the same way, we can't afford to be ignorant of Satan's schemes either. We need to pray, we need to be watchful, and we need to apply ourselves so that we are not outwitted by him. So this morning, um, a little bit like Timothy, I want to just say a few words to encourage you and to exhort you in your faith, as Paul puts it. And maybe you feel at the moment like, Life is just really hard as we as we go through lockdown. Maybe some of I know some of you, in fact, have have really have been shaken um, to use Paul's language. Maybe for you, that's not the case. Maybe you're doing fine in lockdown, but maybe it's something else. Maybe you're facing issues in your marriage. Maybe you're facing the threat of joblessness. Maybe you're facing a bereavement, whatever it is that's pressuring you. Let me encourage you. to to run the race, to press on. Don't be drawn away in your relationship with God. I guess there's a couple of different kinds of temptation that might come in in a season like this. It might be the temptation to a particular kind of sin, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the other kind of temptation is, is just the temptation to give up, isn't it? It's the temptation to say, this is just all too much for me. I, I, I can't carry this on anymore. Even I just want to dial out of my relationship with God. It seems like one thing too many at the moment. If you faced that recently, I totally understand that. I want to urge you, like Timothy, like Paul, to run the race. You might have heard of, of a, a runner called uh, Heather Kampf. She was a uh, an American runner, quite decorated runner. She'd been successful at various different levels, was a multi-medal winner. But probably the most famous, certainly the most inspiring moment of her career was when she won the 600 meter race, having collapsed and fallen to the ground as she went into the final bend. She tells the story that as, as she was going into the final lap of this race, she was in a strong second place. She was poised to take over into the lead. 
And he said the first thing she noticed went wrong was just a little clip, a little nick on the back of her left heel as she was just caught by one of the other runners. She wanted to carry on, but immediately she just felt another, another clip on another heel. And before she knew anything, she had completely hit the deck. It was a spectacular fall. And within, of course, a matter of seconds, she was there in the dust and, and, and the rest of the race was running on, streaking on past her. It must be a crushing disappointment and a horrible moment. And, uh, and I guess in that moment, haven't you, you've got a decision to make in a split second. Are you going to stay down or are you going to get up and run for all you're worth? And I think none of us could judge her. No, nobody could, uh, could judge her for, for deciding in that moment, you know what, I'm just going to stay here. The race, it seemed, was over. The chances of catching up even one runner would have seemed absolutely tiny, and not to mention the fact that she was already on the floor. And not only that, but she describes how as she lifted her head, she could look into the distance and she could see that her teammate had just taken over into first place and was poised to win. So she would have felt doubly justified in, in just saying, do you know what, this isn't my race. I'm just going to give this one up. But in that moment, she made the other decision. In that split second, she sprang to her feet. She set her face forward and she ran for all she was worth. And as the commentator and as the crowds went increasingly wild, you can see online as she went and she sprinted past runner after runner after runner until finally she overtook her own teammate and crossed that finish line in first place. It says this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. A little bit later down, it carries on. It says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, Make straight paths for your feet. Let me encourage you, if you're feeling at this moment like you're falling, don't fall away from God. Fall into him. If you feel like you need to collapse, don't collapse down into the dust. Collapse into his arms. Do you know what? There is no shame in getting to that point in life sometimes where you feel like, do you know what? I just can't cope anymore. There is no shame in feeling like you've come to that moment where you are just at the end of yourself and you have run out of whatever resources you've got to manage. Actually, Paul, who wrote that letter, who wrote a great many letters in the New Testament, this amazing man of God, do you know what? He had a time in his life as well when he just couldn't take it anymore. He says, I went past that line of being able to cope. I was, I was pressed beyond my ability to manage. It was a time when he just completely broke. This, and this is a great guy. This was a guy who was busy planting churches, doing God's work. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And actually, this turned out to be one of the most amazing, one of the most important moments in Paul's life. And it galvanized him and it strengthened him for the years to come and for many more challenges. Because as he learned not to fall away from God, but to fall into God, that was the moment that God could pick him up and God's power really took over. Let me show you the little description of this. It's, it's the beginning of uh, 2 Corinthians, so it's chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 8. Paul says, We don't want you to be unaware, 
of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. This is how he describes it. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired even of life. Did you get how he described that? He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. He said he was in such despair, it was completely beyond his ability to manage. It wasn't just that he was coming to that, close to that point of not being able to take it anymore. It wasn't just that he was coming close to being at the end of himself. He said, no, no, I sailed past that line a long time ago. He didn't believe any of this kind of cliche that we trot out sometimes that God's never going to let you uh, experience more hardship than, than, than you're able to manage. He says, no, 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 no. I stopped managing a long time ago. Even in the next sentence, he, he takes it a step further. He says, we despaired even of life itself. We felt like we'd received the sentence of death. So if you're in a kind of place like that, do you know what? You're in good company because the Apostle Paul had been there as well. But this turned out to be the most incredible thing. Because as he crashed into God, not away from him, suddenly as he came to the end of his own resources, God's power was able to take over like never before. And God delivered him in a spectacular, wonderful way in that moment. And it, and it birthed such a resilience, such a, a steadiness, such a faith in him that God was going to do the same thing again and again. This is what he says. It said this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. And on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul encourages them. I I've been there. I've been past that line and God will meet you. He says he delivered me the first time. He's delivering me right now. He says, I've got faith. He's going to deliver me again and again and again and again. So if the temptation for you at the moment is just to crash out, is just to give up on this walk with God, let me encourage you, don't do that. Run to him. Don't run away. Crash into his arms, not away from them. And let him encounter you at that moment when you've given up, when you've run out of strength. He's going to take over. The other kind of temptation, of course, that we can face is, is the temptation to sin, the temptation to sin against God. And, and maybe at this time of life where we're not able to be together as, as church family so much, maybe you've, you've felt the pull of sin in, in a greater measure. And my encouragement to you would be, to be honest, almost the same. Don't run away from God. Don't let it pull you back from him. But I would spur you on to keep running the race. It can be super discouraging, can't it? When if you find yourself just maybe maybe crashing into the same temptation again and again and again. Sometimes it can it can build a sense of shame in us. And, and shame is is so toxic because it can whisper lies into our ear. It tells us that we can't approach God, that, that, that we can't look to him. We can't talk to him. We can't draw near. But actually, that is the exact opposite of, of what is in Jesus's heart. After all, he gave himself, he died on the cross in our place so that shame could be washed away and, and that we could be reconciled to him. Shame is the last thing he wants us to be walking through. And in the book of Hebrews, it describes Jesus in a wonderful way. It says, Jesus isn't a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He says he really can sympathize because actually he has been tempted in every respect, just like we have, 
every kind of temptation imaginable. Do you know what? He has faced it already. Even the onslaught of the temptation from, from Satan, he experienced that on earth. He knows what it is. He knows what we're going through. Even he's, we, we even see him interceding for us before the Father, expressing, do you know what? I know why that person's responding like that in their life. I understand what they're going through. The only difference is, of course, he never sinned. It says in the next verse, he says, so let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. If, if you're experiencing temptation, if you're experiencing the failure of sin, the answer isn't to back off. The answer isn't to spend less time with God. It's not to shrink back in shame. He says, no, we're invited to draw near to his throne of grace. It says when we do that, we will receive mercy. We'll receive grace to help in time of need. Now, if you're in that place uh, at the moment where you feel like you've just been beaten down again and again and again by a particular sin, I want to give you three quick, uh, three quick things to do, three quick uh, ways that you, can, that you can begin to move on with your life. And the first is going to sound really simple. It's going to sound really obvious, but it's to repent. And really what, what I mean by repentance is, is repentance is a wholehearted giving of your life. It's a surrendering of everything, all of who you are to God. Repentance isn't just about saying sorry for this thing or that thing. It's, it's good to do that. But repentance runs deeper than that. It's, it's, it's a full surrender of every part of yourself to the, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus in your heart. Imagine it like this. Imagine your garden has a, a pond or a pool that's grown stagnant. It's, it's gone brown and it's attracting flies. You want to get rid of these flies. Now, what's the best way to do that? I'd like to suggest it probably isn't to pull out your deck chair and, and sit there on the edge of the pool with your fly swatter, trying to bat away these, each of these flies one by one. You're probably going to be super frustrated like that and not getting anywhere. Really what you want to do is you want to drain that pool. You want to get rid of that stagnant water and you want to fill it up with fresh. And you know what? In, in Just in that one act, you're probably going to wipe out 95% of those flies overnight. And that's a pretty good picture of what it means just to give everything of your life over to the kingship of Jesus. As you repent, as you surrender, it's like draining the pool and asking the Holy Spirit to fill up with fresh. Do you know what? So many of those sins and the power of them is going to get broken almost instantly just by that one act of surrender to the heart of God. So, surrender is the, so repentance is the first thing. The second thing is we really need to, like Paul would describe it, shut the door to Satan. I mentioned earlier in his, in his letter to the Ephesian church, he, he talked about not giving the devil a foothold, not giving him, if you like, a, a foot in the door or a, a little crack in the door that would be an entry point for him to tempt us or afflict us. Often when the enemy comes in with temptation, he comes in because we've, we've given him a little, a little inroad into our lives. Maybe it's something that we do. Maybe it's something that we have. Maybe it's a habit of ours. Maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship that you know is not healthy or right, but is still there in your life. And actually, what we need to do is be pretty ruthless with those things. If, if you know that this, this thing in your life, maybe this thing in your house even, is, is, is something that is an entry point, a, a, an ability that the, the, the enemy has to afflict you, you need to slam that door shut and you need to be pretty ruthless with that thing. 
If you're not sure what it is, maybe just pray, ask the Holy Spirit. Just, just say, reveal to me, what, what is this? Or, or maybe talk to a, a trusted Christian friend. Often other people have a, a, a pretty keen eye on, uh, on the things that we struggle with better than ourselves sometimes. But in doing that, in, in, in renouncing that thing and, and, and not giving it a place in our life anymore, we're slamming shut the door to Satan. The third thing we can do is just to be assured of God's forgiveness. You know, Jesus never intended for our forgiveness to be something that was merely head knowledge, something that was legally true, but we didn't really experience it. Now, he wants it to be something that we understand, that we experience with all of our heart. He wants us to wake up every morning with the joy of not living in shame. He wants us to wake up every morning with the joy of knowing that we are right with him, that we're filled with his spirit and that we are completely washed clean. So don't let shame cause you to shrink away from approaching God. You can come near to him assured that he forgives you, that he cleanses you. And I don't think there is a more powerful way that God has given us to really experience and to enter into the good of that forgiveness than by breaking bread and taking wine. We call it having communion together. Because when Jesus was with his disciples the night before he died on the cross, he, he broke this bread and he took the wine and he said to them, take it, eat it. This is my body. This is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He said that what he was doing was that he was creating a new covenant. In many cultures around the world today, and, and, and very much so in the ancient world, if you wanted to, to really seal, if you wanted to establish your promise to somebody in a way that they could be assured of, if you wanted to enter into a deep binding relationship, you would cut a covenant. And this was the covenant meal. It was the way of receiving and, and, and making that covenant between God and humanity. And actually, as we receive the bread and the wine, we are entering in afresh. We're receiving afresh all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his cleansing. Jesus wanted us to do this regularly. He said, do it as often as you drink it, because he wanted us to keep short accounts with him. He wanted us to come to him with all of our sin, leave it behind and be washed clean. In a few moments, we're going to do that together. If you haven't got bread and wine or juice or whatever it is, uh, that you can find around your house, then then take a moment now. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pass over in a second to Emma, who's going to lead us uh, in a worship song, and then we'll come back together and break bread. You might want to just join in worshiping with that song, but actually, maybe you want to take those few moments just to really pray and cry out to God for yourself. Maybe you're in that place where you find yourself in the grip of temptation and sin, and you just need to come to him. Let's confess those things Say, God, I, I don't want to pull away from you. I, I want to give you all of these things to wash me clean. Or maybe you're in that kind of place where you're just feeling like it's all very overwhelming and you're close to breaking point. Maybe you can just take these few moments now to pray and say, God, I'm running towards you, not away from you. Will you come and meet with me in my time of need? I'm going to pass over to Emma now and we'll come back in a moment.